0: professional development, clean code, career advancement, and more. I'm
1: John Calloway. I'm Clayton Hunt. And I'm John Ash.
2: With us today is Philip Carter. Philip is a software person by trade. He currently works for Microsoft, focusing on .NET languages and compilers and tooling, with a heavy emphasis on F-sharp. Welcome, Philip.
1: Thanks for having me. So, Philip, uh, before we sort of jump into the meat of things, would you give our Uh, Listeners, maybe just like uh, a brief introduction to yourself. Maybe like tell them how you got started in the industry. Yeah,
3: yeah, definitely. Um, So uh, the bio that that was read off is actually quite accurate. We confirmed that before um, doing this thing here. Um, So as as I said, I I work on languages and uh, language tooling at Microsoft, um, focusing a lot on F-sharp and uh, do plenty of C-sharp stuff as well. Um, uh, More recently, I've been kind of dipping my toes into .NET for VS Code and trying to explore, you know, how we can attract more .NET developers from kind of like the non-traditional .NET space, like non-enterprise sort of sort of areas. Like if you're a Go developer, you're a Node developer, or like if you're a student just learning how to code, um, you know, there's some aspects of .NET that can be kind of complicated. And, and you know, maybe that's, that's fine if you're in a complicated environment, but if you're just learning how to get started, we want to make it better. And so anyways, I've been sort of um, doing a lot of different projects at Microsoft for the past five years or so now. Uh, and I got here just straight out of college um, by just dumb luck. I managed to like there was um, like I was having some trouble finding a job near the like near the end of my senior year in university, like applied to like five or five to 10 places. a night, heard like nothing back. And then there was a career fair and uh, they had a Microsoft rep there uh, at my school. And it was the first time they'd ever been there. And so I'm like, OK, well, I guess I'll just kind of go there and hopefully it leads somewhere. Might as well. Um, might as well apply to Microsoft, I guess, and uh, managed to end up on the .NET team. So um, I, I I can't say I know exactly how I managed to arrive at that point, but uh, once once I got there, you know, I've always kind of been a fan of C Sharp and F Sharp, the languages. Uh, I started off with C Sharp in college, and then um, uh, got into F Sharp because uh, for the place that I was working for, I had to write a parser for like a mini DSL um and i didn't know how to do it so i just googled how to how do i write a dsl in c sharp and um there was a link that actually used f sharp rather than c sharp that that i looked at and i thought it was kind of interesting um and i noticed that there was like f sharp in the file new project uh, uh ui for visual studio at the time so um i was like oh this is kind of neat got into it really liked it um and was a total fan so once i was here i sort of worked on a smattering of projects in the lead up to .NET Core getting released. Um, and then after that, there was kind of an opening to have someone try to drive some aspects of F-Sharp and then increasingly more and more language-related stuff. And I said, hey, well, I'm a fan of our languages. So I'm just going to give it a shot and see if, if it's the right fit for me. And it turns out it was. Uh, so I've been doing that for about four and a half years at Microsoft. Um, where the previous like half year or so was just sort of random little projects. And uh, that's basically where I'm at right now, where I, I spent a lot of time on f and doing everything, running the gamut from language design to like actual uh, implementation work to doing stuff like writing the blog post, giving talks about it, uh, doing podcasts about it um, and <laughs> uh, driving a lot of, you know, Questions about like you know not not just how do we do something but like what should we do what should we focus on because you know there's there's so many different things you can do in a language and a language tooling and you only have so many people who have so much time during the day to actually get stuff done and and there's a lot of um, back and forth about you know prioritization and stuff like that that I spent a lot of time on and um, yeah just sort of been doing that for the past couple of years and uh, now I'm 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 able to sort of Play around with a lot of different projects on the .NET team, which is pretty exciting.
0: Before we go too deep into the the inner guts and, and the the details of F Sharp, why don't we take a few minutes and give our listeners a brief introduction of what F Sharp is, what it's for?
3: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so uh, I'd previously mentioned that you know I, I looked at um, F Sharp and file new project in Visual Studio. That that's oftentimes a lot of people's first experience using the F Sharp language in. Um, in any kind of context, very oftentimes you're a C sharp developer. You're just kind of curious. You're just seeing what's in there because, and then you see it, and you're like, "Oh, yeah, this is interesting. It, it's a .NET project, but the code kind of looks a l- little bit more like Python than it, than C sharp." Uh, and that that's one of the that's one of the things that a lot of people notice is um, it is a .NET programming language, but it looks nothing like C sharp. It looks nothing like Java, nothing like C or C It's almost sort of like foreign in a sense, unless you have a lot of Python experience, in which case, uh, the fact that it's a white space sensitive language, and the fact that um, uh, a lot of sort of like ceremony is just kind of missing is is definitely very prominent. And so uh, there's sort of some typical questions that some people will ask. We're like, okay, well, this doesn't look like C sharp. So first of all, where are the types? I don't see, you know, like (laughs) string s, right? Or int x. So like, what is S and what is X in this code that I'm looking at? There are type annotations, as we call them, that you can add if you're familiar with uh, uh, TypeScript at all, where you have like the name of like a variable or, or a parameter and then you have a colon and then the name of the type. You can write that in, in F sharp as well to be explicit with the type annotation. Uh, but what's interesting about F sharp is it uses what's called type inference sort of globally. So if you're familiar with var and C sharp, you can, you know, var X equals something and then whatever the type of that thing is, that's what X is going to be. Um, that's just... Type inference at a local level that c has. Now imagine if you had type inference, but it was throughout your entire program, not just, you know, constrained to a single routine, but you could define a value and have that flow through a series of functions and transformations that happen in those functions and all that kind of stuff. And you don't have to write out what the name of the type is anywhere. It's able to infer it based off of usage. Um, it's actually a technique that was developed in the 1970s called uh, the Hindley-Milner type inference algorithm. And uh, it's a very it's a formalized way to infer the types of something based off of how they're used, and um, that's what F-sharp sort of has at its core. And so one of the reasons why it does that is to reduce a significant amount of boilerplate because you don't you just basically you write a lot less code. You just sort of if like if you're writing an algorithm to do some sort of numeric processing or you're just doing some standard like business rule transformation stuff, you tend to not really write a whole lot of code to do that. Um, But the key thing is that operates in the context of .NET so it runs on the net runtime the same way that c sharp does you know it emits il you know there's a lot of in the in the compiler itself there's a lot of stages that kind of goes through until you know it takes your source code turns it into il um it does that differently than c sharp but the output is you know pretty much identical modulo a few kind of quirks here and there between the the languages but um, it runs on the .NET runtime and it uses the .NET ecosystem and the .NET core libraries. And so uh, if you want to use any NuGet package, you can just use it from F# If you want to uh, use any uh, core library or from the BCL, as it's oftentimes called, you can do that. Um, you can produce assemblies that can be consumed by Csharp. Or you can produce packages that can be consumed by other aspects of the .NET ecosystem. Um, and uh, we sort of have it as a... Uh, uh, functional programming is perhaps more accurately functional first programming language on, on on.net. So, um, if I sort of compare and contrast F sharp and C sharp, um, you know, first of all, they're both Turing complete programming languages. So in theory you could do anything you want in either language, just as you could with any other language that's Turing complete, but, you know, it's not really particularly useful property for day-to-day programming. Um, I would say that, uh, you can think about F-sharp in its relation to um, how other languages work, C-sharp being one of them. So in C-sharp, it's object-oriented first, but there is you know, some functional programming that you can do, obviously, especially with some newer stuff that has come out in C-sharp. But it is fundamentally an object-oriented programming language, and the data that you represent with variables, keyword variable, like vary, it's in the name itself, can change, right? You can mutate things. You can say it's equal to this at one point in time and then it's going to be equal to this at another point in time based off of a certain condition, right? You have an if check and you mutate the, the value of the variable at some point. F sharp is functional programming first. It still does object oriented stuff, but it is oriented around FP rather than OOP. And everything is immutable by default rather than mutable by default we have a distinction. So like in C sharp and plenty of other languages, you have these things called variables. It's like one of the first things you learn when you're programming one of these languages, we call them values and values Hmm. are facts. They are immutable, right? So like, if you kind of think about it conceptually, like, uh, you know, you don't, you don't have like this slot in your brain that's like reserved for a particular fact. And then like, as that changes (laughs) over time, like that, that just gets swapped out with like a different fact. Right. Like, you know, there's sort of this this, uh, you know, this nature of like, okay, well, at this point in time, this was true, but now this thing is true and and so on. But those are like immutable. Right. Like uh, there was a president in the year 1990. And like that didn't just like change because it's the year 2020. Like that's just sort of what it is. And like if you think about that, that's sort of this a, a similar kind of programming model where you bind a, a a value, you you basically say, okay, well, there's some expression that returns something, then it's bound to a value. That value cannot change for the lifetime of this program, period. And it fundamentally changes the way that you write your code because. If you write your code under the assumption that you can kind of inside of a method body or something, just change all sorts of different stuff um, that forces you that, you know, you orient your code a particular way. But if you can't change anything now, you need to think about, OK, well, I'm going to sort of line up my values and sort of flow them through a subroutine inside of this routine that I'm working in or something like that to produce an output. I'm gonna take that output and I'm gonna put that output into the input of another thing that then will produce another thing. And eventually I'm gonna observe a value. Now, you can still mutate stuff in, in F sharp. And in fact, that is encouraged for some high performance stuff. You know, Sometimes it is actually fastest to just iterate through an array and change data as you go through it. Um, but we sort of think that in, in the case of F-sharp, that's sort of not like the default for most things that you're doing. Um, and so anyways, that's kind of my, my roundabout way of saying that in relation to C-sharp in particular and f- languages that are similar to C-sharp, instead of being object-oriented first, it's functional programming first. And instead of being about mutating values by default, it's about not being able to mutate things by default as sort of a constraint that that is really kind of a... Uh, um, a key design decision that that influences the way that you end up writing your programs.
2: F Sharp is not new, but it is one of the newer languages that is associated with .NET. Why was it created? What's its purpose?
3: Ooh, that's a good question. So, um, so yeah, so so some of the history of F Sharp. It's uh, it was in early development through Microsoft Research in kind of the the early to mid two thousands. Um, and you know there were some releases here and there, but you know, it wasn't ever really a product. It was just sort of like a research project to explore what functional programming on .NET could possibly look like. f was very key as a research project in the early days in, in, um, in the design of .NET generics being a runtime uh, thing. And the reason why actually is because in F-Sharp, uh, there's this concept called automatic generalization. Very oftentimes, if, if you're not explicitly annotating your types, you can sometimes find yourself writing code that it, that is just naturally generic. It, given if something is a string or an int, it doesn't really matter if it's a string or an int because it is generic. But in F sharp, you kind of end up in this situation where you're writing that code and it turns out it's generic. So the compiler will say, OK, well, this is generic. We're going to treat it as generic. But that became a problem at at runtime, basically, because there was no real way to represent that in .NET back in the day. And so um, that influenced that sort of design of of saying, OK, well, we're going to specialize at runtime of what the type of something is going to be. That influential role that F# played as a research project in the early days was uh, pretty key as well. It sort of pioneered, at least in the .NET space, uh, the notion of a language-integrated asynchronous programming approach. So you know how in C# there's the async keyword and the await keyword. Well, F# also has an async construct, um, and it basically it's sort of this way of saying, okay, well, there's this block of code. In this block, the context in which this block of code is executing is asynchronous. It's not the same as, you know, other blocks of code necessarily. And sort of the way that surfaces in a language through types and, and sort of certain constraints on what you can do and what you can't do, um, that also very heavily influenced C Sharp and um, uh, plenty of other languages as well. So that was kind of its initial purpose. But as it was, it, like, over time, uh, in the lead up to 2010... Uh, F was getting more and more like a product because uh, there were actually these drops of the compiler and there were users who were using it and then depending on it for their own work, even though it wasn't a supportive product. And, uh, uh, there was a decision, uh, to actually productize it because, because of this and a couple of other factors, um, there, there were plenty of fans of F at Microsoft who just sort of loved the idea of having an alternate language on the, the runtime. As an influential role, but then also just sort of as a thing that helps people think differently. Because if you have to think about two different ways to approach a problem from a programming language standpoint, it's gonna, you know, you're gonna you're gonna broaden your thinking as as a runtime engineer or as a uh, mm-hmm. as a framework engineer. So, anyways, in the lead up to 2010, they decided, okay, we're gonna productize it and ship it with uh, Visual Studio 2010, the the very first um, supported release, which was actually F Sharp 2.0 because there was a uh, was a 1.0 before then that. Was like, not really a product, but like basically good enough to be a product. So people were using it. Um, and <laughs> since then, it's grown uh, quite a bit. And it uh, turns out there's quite a few people, especially in, I'll call them analytical domains. When when you're pr- processing data of some kind, it could be at a bank, it could be scientific oriented, it could be data science stuff. Uh, It could be, uh, you know, a bunch of events coming from, like, an event store or something like that. Um, uh, They they tend to like functional programming when they're doing that sort of stuff, and so they tend to pick F-sharp. Yeah, it's undergone quite a few releases since then, uh, sort of evolved from a Windows-focused functional programming language for .NET to just sort of a cross-platform functional programming language for .NET that can be used in a lot of different domains, not just those that are constrained to Visual Studio and Windows.
1: Yeah, so that sort of brings up an uh, interesting uh, question. And that is sort of, there's F-sharp, should we just automatically use that? Or, or why might you pick wh- F-sharp or pick C-sharp or something else? Um, you know, what's, what's it really good for?
3: Yeah, so uh, there's a couple of different answers to that question, because I think it kind of depends on um, who you are and what you're trying to accomplish. Going through a couple different personas, let's say you're a relatively seasoned .NET developer, or um, yeah, just say .NET developer, you're pretty comfortable with C-sharp and .NET. Um, I would say that one of the best uh, purposes that F-sharp can fill is just sort of getting you to um, solve problems in a way that you may not have expected you'd be able to solve them. Just thinking differently about the code that you write. Because uh, in a way, coding kind of is just sort of a, a tool for thought. Like, you know, you're, you're, you're writing this very abstract language that has nothing to do with how it actually executes on somebody's machine. Uh, or like, I mean, you, if you trace the path, like you'll eventually certainly find like, OK, well, these this this code that I wrote translates to this literal set of machine instructions. But you're not writing those machine instructions. You're doing abstract thinking. Uh, well, that abstract thought process, you know, there's so many. There's this tower of abstraction on top of that. So you can change that thought process in and out. Um and I, th- I honestly do think you can become a better C-sharp programmer if you learn F-sharp, because um, there will be some times in your C-sharp code where doing stuff functional and immutable oriented um, will serve you better. And you'll be, you'll, it, it'll sort of become like a tool in your tool belt, like not necessarily using F-sharp to solve that problem, but using the, the sort of thought process that you developed as an F-sharp programmer. Now, switching gears a little bit, let's say you're a Python developer, like maybe you're a Python web developer, or you're a data scientist, or you got kind of foot in data science, foot in somewhere else. And let's say you're the kind of person who likes to be a little bit more structured with their thinking, than perhaps a dynamic programming language would give you the tools to to be. Uh, I've seen this plenty of times actually talking to uh, scientists and data scientists and people who are, you know very structured in their thought. They're like, okay, well, this there's this concept that I'm working with that is derived from this data, and it has a particular form. I would like the code that I'm writing to understand the form that I'm operating in. And like, if I do something wrong, give me an error rather than force me to figure out what the heck went wrong when I saw that the program subtly failed. Maybe it crashed. Maybe it didn't crash, but it produced incorrect results, and I had no idea why. Uh, Python doesn't really give that to you very well. Now, you could write Python type hints, but it's not really standard Python. And so that's kind of a problem. F sharp is great for that, because if you're used to that lightweight syntax and you don't want to go into full on curly brace world, uh, <laughs> you can do that and you can get those static types and you can model your domain, uh, you know, whatever it may be, using a very powerful type system. Um, and get, you know, sort of the standard program correctness that we're used to as, uh, as C-sharp and Java developers, where, you know, if you try to stuff in a string into an int, it'll fail. Uh, you know, abstract that out into, you know, try to stuff an A into a B. Well, if they're not, if they're not declared as compatible with each other, then it's just going to be an error. That is a very powerful tool, but in the context of not a whole lot of code. And so like, I, I would say at the end of the day, you're probably going to be more productive if that aligns with your way of thinking when you're doing that sort of work. And then lastly, I'd also say that uh, this probably applies to everyone, but so every language has a bit of a character to it. Um, and the particular character of F-sharp is one that you you have a powerful type system at your hands that you can do some fancy stuff with if you like, but you kind of tend not to do too much fancy stuff. You can, You tend to just sort of, uh, not write a whole lot of code when you're getting stuff done. And the way that you do that is you tend to organize a bunch of data types that correspond to your data and then data transformation separate from those types that that transform data in the way that you want it to be. And then sort of this top level program that just sort of reads in the data and feeds it to your transformation processes and then you know, outputs a result of some kind. Uh, that could be in the context of a web server. It could be just a tool that runs as a batch process somewhere or something like that. Um, that tends to just jive with a lot of people. If I compare it with object-oriented programming, where it's very intentional that you mix together your data definition with the transformations on that data, right? Like methods on objects, for example. In F-Sharp, you, you tend to have a very clean separation between your data definition and your functionality, and that comes with some trade-offs, right? In some cases, that's actually not the best thing to do, but in some cases, it's quite good. If you tend to think about problems in that way, uh, you're probably going to find that F-Sharp will work quite well for the way that your, your thinking works about those kinds of processes. And then also, again, that's in the context of running on .NET with a huge third-party ecosystem that you can plug into. And so if you you know, you know need to use a package, you need to do something instead of writing literally all the code yourself, you can. And you can guarantee that it's going to run cross-platform, it's going to perform well, all that kind of stuff.
0: It seems like a lot of the languages, too, are, are getting closer to one another. Like, we're... C Sharp is borrowing concepts from from F Sharp and and Java and C Sharp developers are playing nice together and sharing ideas and concepts. E- even the the JavaScript ecosystem, they're all playing nice and, and learning from one another and building better tools, better languages, better frameworks, better libraries. Is that what we're seeing in the .NET ecosystem as well with with the latest changes for C Sharp nine?
3: Oh yeah, yeah, for sure. You know, um, obviously the the C Sharp language people. You know they didn't just straight up copy paste f sharp stuff into their language <laughs> but but you know there there was um there was a lot of influence there right you know like uh, c sharp over the past couple of releases has added, added the concept of pattern matching and it's a little different than how it works in, in f sharp um but a lot of the core concepts are similar and uh, the reason why is because they're like hey a lot of programmers like thinking about their code this way they like thinking about a particular shape of of data, and then and then um, matching on the shape of the data, and dispatching functionality based off of the shape that you get, and then getting some form of correctness about that. And then they basically said, "Okay, well, how, we have that concept. What does that mean in terms of C Sharp? Uh, what are some specifics about C Sharp programming that are kind of annoying today that could be made better by this?" I think a great example, I think, is the the is pattern, where you know fairly often you you have like this casting thing where 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 you you used to only have like this runtime cast available. Then they added the as keyword so you could so you could cast it as a thing. So um, it's potentially a compile time thing, but it would be null if it's not going to actually succeed at runtime. So then you have to check for null. Um, and it's just kind of annoying. You really just want to say like, you know, hey, is X this thing? Um, and if it is just in the scope of that statement, just let me treat it that way. Otherwise, I'm not going to treat it that way. Um, and I think that's sort of a classic example of taking the concept that they sort of identified as being valuable from a language design standpoint. And then um, applying that to specific C-sharp semantics and problems that people have or annoyances that people have when they do certain things. And so, yeah, that, that kind of borrowing Happens a lot in language design. Um, in a way, every programming language is kind of an experiment, and some things work out amazingly well, and some things are just kind of not as great. Or, you know, I mean, I, I would like to say <laughs> that in certainly in the case of C sharp and F sharp, I think we tend to do a pretty good job with really, you know, we tend not to release real stinkers when it comes to features. But um, certainly, some features are more successful than others in terms of adoption, uh, and. I mean we can't really measure adoption, but you know you kind of look at, oh, I don't know, dynamic versus string interpolation. I think there's a lot of people who love string interpolation and a lot of programmers who probably just ignore dynamic altogether in C sharp right Does that mean one is a failure? Not really, but that does mean that string interpolation is awesome, and maybe some <laughs> other languages could borrow some aspects of string interpolation incorporate into their own programming because it turns out it's really cool and so JavaScript now has that f sharp actually has that. I wouldn't be surprised if Java has it as well. And so that that dynamic happens a lot. And I think one of the trends that's going on right now is that there's a set of functional languages like F sharp, Scala, Haskell, Clojure, uh, OCaml, Standard ML, uh certainly missing some others, Elm, uh, Elixir. Uh they're all their own experiments doing certain stuff. And some things, some aspects of what they're doing. Are getting more popular, and some of these more mainstream, larger languages are saying, uh, "Okay, well, this is a potential direction that we can go because, like, there's clearly something here." And so, um, what what ends up happening? They don't quite have exactly the same feature because once you get into the nitty gritty of the language design, you find out that you know there's the way that something surfaces in F Sharp is backed by nine or ten other behaviors in the F-sharp language that are mm-hmm. not there in C-sharp, for example. And you say, okay, well, we can't quite literally do this. But what's sort of the essence of, of this that, that we can extract out and make useful in a different context? Uh, so that's, that's sort of what's happening right now. And I think a lot of that is coalescing around functional languages because people are finding for some reason that functional programming is very productive if I were to try to guess, I don't know if I could really give an answer as to why that is. Um, But it's certainly, I think what we're observing in the case of uh, cases of C sharp, uh, Java and JavaScript language evolution right now.
2: So what are some of the uh, newer features in F sharp that are uh, cool or interesting that either are also new in C sharp or that might be cool if they were in C sharp?
3: Oh, that's, that's a good question. So, um, I think my favorite and probably the favorite uh, new feature of F-Sharp people right now that, that I've seen is uh, what we call package references in F-Sharp scripts. So kind of backing up for a moment, F-Sharp has this, I guess you call it traditional .NET model of project-based executables where you write code. It's in the context of an MS build-based project. It produces an assembly. You can execute that assembly against the target runtime and it's good to go. F Sharp also has a different mode of writing code called scripting, where there's 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 a process called F Sharp Interactive that you kick off, uh, and then you can just send F Sharp code to that process, and it will type check and execute that code against the the process and and output a, a result, typically in like a structured text output format. That's something that's used by quite a few people. Uh, it's used in a lot of uh, utilities. So you know sometimes. If you're just sort of doing like quick and dirty tools, you don't really want to have you know, this big structure that that you have, you just kind of want some code that you can just execute similar to a a shell script. Uh, It operates exactly like that for those sorts of use cases. Uh, It's also great for learning and it's increasingly getting used in uh, data science and analytical areas where you're kind of going back and forth between your data and your representations of your data and sort of the output and sort of massaging the data into a form that's going to work for a particular algorithm that you're going to run it against, Um, oftentimes machine learning. Algorithms like in this case, usually almost always deep learning, but you know sometimes not that. Uh, When you're doing that kind of work, or if you're just doing exploratory programming in general, it's very nice to have third-party packages because we live in uh, a a modern future where there's every language has its own ecosystem of interesting functionality, and you don't have to write all your functionality for everything. If you have some JSON, you don't have to write your own JSON parser; you can just pull one in and use it. Um, But there was this question of how do I do that in a scripting? way. Because today in .NET, you, you use NuGet to add your package but like to your projects, but there is no project in scripting. So how do you add a package? Well, in the, the way that F-Sharp developers used to have to do it is they would have to download a zip file to package manually, unzip it into a well-known location, and then have this assembly directive that we have in scripts called pound R, where you have a string that represents a path to the assembly. And then you have to find that and then load it up and make sure that it gets loaded up with additional assembly references that you know are going to work. Um, if you have a package that depends on other other references, you need to make sure those are included in your script and it's complicated and it kind of sucks. You really just want to be able to say, I am referencing this package. Now I just want to use this package. And that's what uh, package references in f scripts are. So the way that it looks in code is you just literally type pound R and then you have a string. And then set that string, you just say Nuget colon, the name of the package. And then when you execute that script, it actually uses NuGet to resolve that uh, that package and all of its dependencies. It may have native dependencies, for example, and it knows how to resolve those correctly. And- pull in the right assets. And then it references them at, uh, at well, I guess we call it script runtime when it's uh, executing the script and then it evaluates it. And so that becomes really valuable if you're working in a tool such as Jupyter Notebooks where you wanna interactively like process different things and, and, and uh, go back to different cells and change your code and maybe graph some results to see what it looks like and then kind of go back and change stuff around again. Um, that's a big feature that landed in F-sharp five. Another uh, set of features was string interpolation, which I just brought up. We added that to F-sharp recently uh, because it was so popular in C-sharp. Uh, and then also name of. Uh, again, a very popular C-sharp feature um, where you can at compile time resolve the name of something in your source code and it produces a string that represents that. It's awesome for logging, for example. Uh,
1: uh-huh.
3: That that was another one that we pulled in. And so I think that trifecta, like, you know, we released plenty more uh, F-sharp features in the past release, but I think those three are sort of the big ones that... Um,
1: people feel like they're the most productive with. That's super cool. So uh, be, before we kind of ask about uh, resources, I had one question kind of referring back to you had mentioned that people, uh, you know, one one good way of reason to, to try Sharp is it really improve your paradigm and the way that you think about uh, problems and whatnot. So sort of thinking about that, I think probably a lot of our listeners are C Sharp developers probably a lot of business apps, they're probably doing web applications, right? Uh, have some sort of JavaScript front, front end using .NET on a, as a backend for the API. Where's the, what would the jumping off point would you recommend? Do they need to like a file new F-sharp, the whole thing has to be an F-sharp program or is there like a class library or where, where would you say, how do you, where would be the best place for them to carve something off to say, hey, I'm gonna tackle some F-sharp here and get started.
3: That's a good question. Um, I'd say there's three, uh, three ways. So the, the least intrusive way is a, just a class library. Uh, let's, let's say you have just some kind of just logic, just pure logic, right? Not talking to the database, not talking to the outside world. It's just Pure simple .NET logic that you're doing, and you want to learn how to do it a little differently. You can create a class library uh, and reference that from your C sharp projects, any C sharp project that that would be relevant to, and just pass data to you know your, your class definition or, or data. It could even be something as simple as a string to a data definition that you have somewhere else. Um, you just pass it in, and you can isolate your your code there. Uh, you can then also write some tests in an F-sharp test project that test mm-hmm. that specific project, for example. Um, you know, tests are pretty simple usually. They're you know just inputs and outputs, right? So that yep. fits in yep. with functional programming <laughs> perfectly. Uh, uh, that that's that's a good low-impact way to do it. There there can sometimes be some quirks, like uh, interfacing it the right way to C sharp, you know, if you have uh, some F sharp types. Are not directly representable in C sharp, or they are, but it's kind of awkward. Um, there's ways around that. You can you, you sort of just create kind of like a clean interface where instead of so, for example, in F sharp, we have this thing called the F sharp option type that represents either a value or no value. It's sort of a strongly typed representation of null versus versus non null. Um, if you expose that to C-sharp. Well, C-sharp doesn't have the language semantics around optionals, so it doesn't have nice syntax for dealing with it, so it's kind of annoying. And so what you would typically do is you would say, okay, in my F-sharp layer, in the input layer, and I'm gonna accept data, validate it really quickly, do some stuff, and then when it goes back out, it doesn't go back out as an F-sharp type, it goes back out as just like a standard .NET type, like yeah, some yeah. custom class, an instance of one of those classes, or let's say that the output was like a string, just a string, something like that. Uh, that can that can usually be pretty productive. Uh, the second choice is to actually spin up a web server in in F# because we do have some options for that. You can do it as a standard MVC style uh, controller, uh, or you can incorporate a package. Um, we have uh several choices in, in the F sharp world. We have one called Giraffe, which is a an alternative to MVC. We have a uh thing that sits on top of that, which is called Saturn, which is a, a very uh opinionated way to build web apps. Um And then we have a a project called Falco, which is sort of a different take altogether. And they all call into the same exact ASP.NET primitives. So it's still, you know, you still surface stuff the same way and it still has the same runtime characteristics. Uh, But then that can be interesting because then you start to get into whole program, functional programming, Mm -hmm. rather than Mm -hmm. just isolating a small unit. Uh, That can actually be quite helpful. Like I've sort of noticed that developers tend to... Either go down the path of having a very isolated unit that uses functional programming or saying, I'm just gonna do the whole thing and see how far it goes. <laughs> okay. Uh, and that that's I, I would say you can do both, and that's really good. Uh and then the third is you can go even even further, where uh instead of writing JavaScript, you could write F sharp. There's this uh project called Fable, very, very good, very high quality open source project that takes f sharp source code and it turns it into javascript and a key aspect of it is when you're writing f sharp in fable you're not writing net f sharp you're writing javascript f sharp and so w- you don't have NuGet packages that you depend on you have npm packages hmm. uh, when when you when you call into a data like a, a standard date time for example it's not the net date time it's the javascript based date time and it's definitely a bit of a different world but a lot of F# sharp programmers have really loved it because they they tend to like strong typing, and JavaScript doesn't really have that. And uh, you know, it turns out if if you switch gears from like a very structured, logical way of thinking to JavaScript, sometimes it doesn't really work out very well. You're like, okay, well, I, I like I like thinking about stuff with types, and now I don't have them. Why why is why is this a thing? And so it, I like to think of it as an alternative to TypeScript those are sort of the three options there uh I'd recommend ba- like sort of identifying you know what what really attracts you the most like yeah, so like personally I'm the kind of person who likes to isolate something and just focus mm-hmm. only on that so the first option would be you know what I would personally pick uh but I've certainly run into people who who want to just do the whole program that way or want to go even further and introduce f sharp into an entirely different paradigm and then maybe uh, share a little bit of source code between the two like uh data definitions that would run in javascript land versus dotnet uh, land and there's different ways to get started with each of those uh, i would say that the first option is the easiest uh the second option uh, like it, it i also i guess mentioned them in in order from easiest to hardest but uh, when you go full stack f sharp it's actually pretty wild so uh,
1: i recommend checking it out cool are there resources that you would point people to uh for those people that are trying to get started and and trying to use f sharp what what might those be
3: so for the first option the the resources are actually somewhat slim, just because the the actions that you have to take to get started are so simple. You just create a new project in your solution, and you know you add add references, and then you're off to the races. Uh, the second option, the one of the packages that I named Giraffe uh, is uh, you, you Google that. There's like a GitHub project, and there's a documentation site. It's got very extensive documentation about how to get started with some templates. So uh, you install .NET uh, CLI templates, and you can just type .NET new Giraffe, and then it'll it'll scaffold out the the code for you, and you can go from there. And uh, Fable is actually the same way. There's .NET templates, uh, except because instead of just writing. F-sharp running against .NET, you're also writing F-sharp running against uh, uh, JavaScript. So there's a lot more documentation. So uh, the the two second more hard option that I that I mentioned come with their own websites and documentation explaining how to get started because uh, there is sort of a mind shift uh, that occurs when you do that. And you definitely want to have a bit more prescriptive guidance than just a project with some code and, and being told to, to get started. But then once you're writing the F-sharp code yourself, they're, they the official Microsoft Docs are actually pretty good. I wrote okay. a bit of that, so uh, <laughs> I will endorse them. Um, there is a blog series as well called F Sharp for Fun and Profit run by an amazing F Sharp community member named Scott Will Ashen. And he basically, starting in 2012, really got into the language and said, I'm going to write a massive tutorial on the language from the perspective of an existing enterprise C Sharp Java or JavaScript developer or Python developer, I think. And and there's a lot of compare and contrast between F-sharp and C-sharp on that site about, you know, okay, here's how you would, might approach solving a problem in C-sharp. Here's sort of an equivalent in, in F-sharp. You know, he, he starts off real easy and then gets into advanced topics, you know, starting off with just basic syntax all the way to here I have this data type called a discriminated union. Oh, no, what does that mean? What do I do with that? What's it good for? What are some examples? What's the syntax? What's that syntax mean? And uh, it's, it's sort of like a, a massive resource that Sharp developers will, will point new people at because it's just got so much good stuff once you're in the thick of writing code about how you actually write that code and how you combine different concepts together to solve problems. I have to,
2: I'll have to check that site out. So as we wrap up, what has been helpful in your career that you might share with those getting started or those looking to level up their careers?
3: I would say that probably the biggest thing that I've learned is that, uh, well, I've I've learned two things that number one, sometimes a lot of things take a lot of time and you kind of can't really change that. And it can be very, like when you know that you're right about something. And, and you know that, oh, if we only just did it this way, it's going to be so great. Usually you're kind of wrong. Um, <laughs> but, but that's okay. Because uh, everyone is like that. And we're all just kind of trying to do our best here. Um, but then the second one is that really like, you know, when a lot of times, you know, improving your career is about the, the, the magic word impact whatever, whatever impact means for, you know, whatever organization you're in and how you achieve that. And I certainly what I found at Microsoft, and what I think is probably true, especially in a lot of bigger companies is that uh, impact takes a long time. And you kind of have to be very like if if you're onto something that you know is right, and you 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 perhaps you know it's not just because you think you know it. Maybe you've done some real work, and you've built some consensus with your peers about like what to accomplish and why to accomplish it, and that, and that kind of stuff. Um, Something that you think should just be so obvious and we could just get started on it and get going. And then six months later, you're wondering why something hasn't really happened yet. Uh, often, Oftentimes, that's just because it just takes that long to get to get sort of everything going. And that's something that I learned a lot is that you can have a lot of impact, but it takes a significant amount of consistency and grit to kind of be willing to. Uh, Make the same arguments again and again and again to different people to sort of convince them of of doing doing certain things But then once it starts to take off once the the thing that you're trying to accomplish everybody starts to buy into it It's almost sort of magical watching it happen Mm -hmm. I think that's that's sort of the biggest thing that I've learned is that once if you are consistent enough in Trying to accomplish something and getting consensus from people to help you along with that eventually they're gonna come around and uh well so long as the idea is good enough and so long as there's enough evidence to prove that what you're trying to do is right so also learning functional programming is great i'm a functional programming fan so of course i'm gonna say that but like there's some really really smart people in functional programming and just getting exposure to them is like you're gonna learn so much it's
1: unbelievable where where can our listeners go to follow you and just keep up with uh, what you're working on
3: Um, so I have a Twitter account. It's at underscore Carter MP. And I have my own website, which is philipcarter.dev. I I don't put too many posts up there. I think I have like three for this year. I started this year. So I guess three a year isn't too bad. And that's pretty much it, honestly. Uh, Aside from like, there'll be some conferences that I'm at and that kind of stuff. So any conference that involves programming, especially if it's got F-Sharp involved, there might be a pretty decent chance that I'll be there. And so if you're ever curious about that, uh, definitely attend that conference and say hi.
0: Thanks a lot, Philip. Really appreciate you taking the time to speak with us today.
3: Yeah, thanks for having me.
0: That was Philip Carter. Philip is a software person by trade. He currently works for Microsoft, focusing on .NET languages and compilers and tools, with a heavy emphasis on F-Sharp. He likes doing other things, too, like riding snowboards and bikes.
2: If you like this episode, please like, rate, and review on
0: iTunes. Find show notes, blog posts, and more at SixFigureDev.com.
1: And catch us live each week on Twitch. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at SixFigureDev.
0: This has been another episode of the Six Figure Developer Podcast, helping others reach their potential.
1: I'm John Callaway. I'm Clayton Hunt. And I'm John Nash.